Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, we're doing this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? Nice to have you back. We are about to begin part two of the Judd Apatow interviews. I did a two-part interview. Obviously, many of you listened to the first one where I talked to Judd a bit about you know how he started, but more importantly, we showcased a you know, basically his version of WTF, which he did when he was 16 years old, uh, segments of the interviews he did as a high school student with Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, and Jay Leno, and really learned about you know, how this was really Judd you know, trying to put together his future. And now that we are in his future, uh, in this episode, what's, we're going to talk to Judd about, about where he's at now, how he feels about comedy, about his own films, about his career, and about uh, how, how his life is, as usual. So this is more of a traditional uh, WTF interview. So let's get right to it. This is part two of the WTF Judd Apatow interview. Enjoy. <laughs> I met you briefly. The first time I met you was at a party at Stacy Nelson's house. She was a publicist. Uh, I was dating her. I was being held hostage at her house. Yes. I did the A-list. I think it was 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazing Jonathan. I met you at a party, and you insisted that I was never going to leave L.A., and I left. And really? had it, Yeah, and I wish... Why, why was, would I say that? It was one of those weird <laughs> moments where... We're like, you know, everyone's hanging around and I'm, and you go like, you know, so what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm staying at her house and yeah, I got to go back to New York. He, 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 you said that oh, you'll be back. You'll be back. <laughs> like, it was like almost ominous. And like, I, it, it, and then you said you, you, you shouldn't leave it's something to that degree, but I left. I probably should have listened to you because I didn't come back for years, but there was that whole crew there at that time. It was Ben Stiller. And I imagine that's around the time that you guys were working on the show. Was that 88? Uh, the show was 90, we probably started working on it in 89. 91 and yeah. aired in 92. And that was the first real TV job? I mean, for the, I, like... For... I wrote stand-up for a few comedians, and when they did specials, I would, you know, I'd be a co-producer or something. So I, I wrote with Roseanne her act for a year, and she did this great HBO special where she wore a gold LeMay Elvis outfit. Right. And she shot it in Minnesota, and... I wrote jokes for Tom Arnold and wrote a few specials for him. But then I met Ben uh, at an Elvis Costello Unplugged concert. And we both knew HBO was looking for a show, a sketch show. And we thought of something in two weeks and and sold it. And at the time we sold it, people thought we had been friends forever and we had known each other for 14 days. And you still friends? Yes. And Because I talked to him. Did you listen to that I one? I did. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was fun hearing him talk about... You know, the days when we were first getting started. Now, now, like in Funny People, you saw that footage of you and Adam, and that was and Janine. Yes, and Ben. And you were all. And what year was that? Eighty nine, or eighty eight? That, uh, that was eighty nine or ninety. And uh, in the footage in the beginning of the movie, you see Adam making a phony phone call, and actually, and actually, I shot it in our apartment. And Ben Stiller and Janine Garofalo are there laughing, so you see them very briefly. Yeah. In the opening credits. 
Uh, and at the time, Adam was so funny, but had no outlet. So he would make phony phone calls for hours and hours. And I thought he was so hilarious that it didn't make sense that I wouldn't record it. Yeah. I felt bad yeah. that they would disappear and never be heard again. So first I would audio record them and then video record them. Do you have all that stuff too? I have all the, all of that stuff. I, I, when we were doing funny people, I found hours and hours of of Adam, Adam Sandler, Sandler funny phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> it was always calling Jerry's Deli and complaining about the roast beef and saying it made him sick. And they would always be so nice. And then he would be an you know, old lady and he would negotiate getting a free sandwich. And, and he'd and, go get it? Or he wouldn't? He would never go get it. But it was always like, could I get a free sandwich for my trouble? And they would say, okay. And he would say, well, I had turkey, but I don't want to get hurt again. Could I, this time I get the roast beef? And he would keep them on the line for 20 minutes negotiating the sandwich. And as a comedy nerd, yeah. I knew that's the guy. Yeah. I just, I just, to me, it was no different than, than, you know, watching one of the people I looked up to who was on TV. Yeah. And we all had a sense, oh, Adam's going to, right. Adam's going to hit. This is, you know, uh, uh, there's no way this doesn't happen. Right. He just delighted us. I mean, he made us laugh so hard. And back then when he wasn't making movies or on Saturday Night Live, he, he took all the energy he, he uses now to make these movies and would just do it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or strangers yeah. on the street. I mean, he That's would what... try to be funny yeah. uh, in situations where now he's probably too tired to bother yeah. being funny, like a phony phone call. Now, that's so you had that sense of him and you keep using comedy nerd but they, be, what, back then they didn't, that didn't exist you were just a guy that loved comedy I remember moving to LA and I started doing stand-up at this place called the LA Cabaret in the Valley yeah. in Encino and I started meeting comedians for the first time uh, personally not yeah. just interviewing them and yeah. I realized they're all like me. They all like the same stuff. Yeah. I finally can talk to people about Monty Python and the weird sketches in, in the last 10 minutes of Saturday Night Live and the Marx Brothers. And I felt like the B-girl in the video and then they opened the gates and there's like 100 other B-girls. I used to cry <laughs> watching that video because that's how I felt <laughs> moving to Los Angeles, hanging out with Dana Gould, talking about Elvis Costello songs oh, and all yeah. these things that we were into. Well, that's a, that's yeah, that's a, that's a pretty... Yeah, there are there is a level of of really bright comics, but there's also the other level as well. Sure, yes. <laughs> I avoided them for the most part. <laughs> you found who your crew was. Now, what is it like? I guess, and from my own personal knowledge, so now, you you know, you the ones you wrote, you you wrote Forty Year Old Virgin with Steve Carell, and you wrote Knocked Up, yes, and you wrote Funny People, obviously, mm -hmm. and you wrote uh, you didn't write Super Bad, you produced. I produced Superbad, yes. Uh, you produced the Pineapple Express. Uh, yeah, and I, I wrote the story with Seth and Evan. And But now, when you what is the role? Because I, I'm unclear. Cause I, I never really understood show business, which is, you know, you, know, you can see. But, <laughs> but when you produce something, when, you, when your company, whatever's on that board right now becomes a movie. Yes. Are you that involved in all of your productions? What is the role of a producer? I think... It's different for every producer. Some producers might just help you sell something, get you the money to, to make it. Some producers are very deeply, creatively involved in every step of the process. For me, I'm a writer, so as a producer, the thing that I, I can do that's most valuable is, from the earliest stages, talk about the story with you and, and, and pitch it around and, and try to make it better. And then... I have failed enough in this business to know what can go wrong. 
Like what? And what are your failures do you consider? Well, I, I certainly had a lot of experiences where I didn't control the casting. And so early on I realized, oh, if I, I can't hire the right actors, it's not going to work. Even if they're great actors, if they're the wrong actors, it's a disaster. Or uh, if we lose control of the script and you get rewritten by a stranger, it's going to be terrible. So there's you know, hundreds of lessons that I took a, a beating uh, to learn. And so now when I meet a young writer, so if it's Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and they're, 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 they've been working on Superbad for seven years, literally they started working on it when they were 13, 14 years old, there's a hundred uh, landmines I can help them avoid because I got blown up uh, you know, by them before. But you know, it seemed to me that that movie made sense for you because it did what you like to do. It seemed to me that that movie had uh, elements that were so personal and clearly so, you know, genuine that they were they had to they were undeniably real. That's what I loved about the script. They they showed me the script in two thousand one or two thousand two, and we did a table read of it where Seth would play one of the kids. Yeah, and, and him and Jason uh, Siegel read it. By the time we had it made, they were too old to play those parts. Uh, but I, I related to you know a story about two nerdy guys realizing that they went all the way through high school and never learned how to talk to girls, never learned how to be social. They just hung out with each other, and now they're going to go to different colleges, and they're fucked. So they're in, a, in a panic, they try to make up for lost time. But over the course of many years of reading it and punching it up and talking about it, we all figured out that it, was, it really was a, a love story about high school friendship. Yeah. And, and what that means. And, and once uh, everybody tuned into that and we hired Greg Matola to direct it, it, it actually, in addition to some amazing uh, comedy writing, became a, an emotional movie. And that's why I, I think those guys made a, a classic because uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's strangely powerful in, in the way it reminds you of how much you loved your best friend in high school. Yeah, I, it was one of the things that really drew, drew me more into your work and and also this this freaks and geeks thing. This is a recurring theme with you. Is that the, these socially awkward, alienated, you know, guys that uh, have to deal with that and have to group with each other and sort of uh, you know have this different type of strength to get through things. Uh, cocky nerds. That's yeah. what me and Leslie always talk about it. Is it's it's people who think uh, they don't think ill of themselves. They actually think that there's something special about themselves, but no one's noticed it. Right. And so the characters on Freaks and Geeks, the geeks, they look down on the people who beat on them. Yeah. But they still are terrified of them. Right. And so that's what makes them interesting. But they, they know they're superior. Yes. They have a, an air of superiority as, as uh, they're getting pummeled. Right. And did you, was this something that you carried in your life? Do you think that, it, would you hang, you know, outside of your fear of bankruptcy, some of the, the momentum of, of, you know, realizing your dreams and, and your ambition on that? on just this idea that, you know, it had to happen? Uh, I, I did have a sense that I was interested in something that no one else was interested in. And because of that, I might be able to slip in the door because there was zero competition. You know, when I was into comedy and comic books as a kid, there literally was not one other kid to share it with. I didn't have a friend who would also love Seinfeld or mm -hmm. X-Men comic books. Uh, in 1976 or 77, I was yeah. alone. And I did think it was kind of cool. I never thought, I'm a loser for liking this and no one else does. They were all into Pete Rose or the Steelers. And I had a, some sense that, oh, 
I'm going to be the only person who does this, so I'm going to get a job. I would, this will happen. There's no competition here. <laughs> well, I guess you, you and 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 Ben, and uh, I mean Freaks and Geeks, and and the Ben Stiller Show, and Mr. Show to some degree, you know, really created this community of comedy nerds in some ways. Uh, it, Do you, you feel know, that? I, I I think that Ben, in a lot of ways, uh, is the beginning of much of what's happened in in modern comedy he, he did the ben stiller show on mtv which was a larry sanders-esque show where he it was behind the scenes of a sketch show where ben was kind of a jerk and and, and he did it with jeff Kahn, who, who worked on the ben stiller show and harry o'reilly was one of the actors and he he did this great u2 sketch parody of the u2 playing on the roof uh, and a richard greco parody <laughs> looker and he did filmic parodies. We used to call it SCTV if they had money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I met Ben after he did that. So when we created the Ben Stiller show together, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Ben knew how to make short films. I just was the guy trying to hopefully figure out how to not have Ben realize I didn't know how to do anything but write stand-up jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm just keeping my mouth shut yeah, and yeah. listening to Ben. yeah. Because he was already brilliant and had a vision for what this was. And slowly I figured out how to run a writing staff and edit. But it was I was faking it. I was faking it for a long is time. Like everyone does, though, for the first couple jobs? I, I, it is what you do, but I was the, in charge of the writing and editing of the show. <laughs> and, and so it was like not like faking it as a staff writer. I literally was 25, 24, 25 years old yeah. with no... <laughs> background at all and I hired people uh, with Ben who were brilliant like like Dino Stamatopoulos and, and, and Bob Odenkirk and uh, Brad Forrester uh, David Cross um, and uh, and uh, and so in a lot of ways it was trying to manage these personalities who were bursting with energy I mean Bob I know Bob was Still. The funniest man in the world. I mean, the energy he had during the Ben Stiller show, when he didn't like someone else's sketch, he would be like, oh my God, we can't do that. Who wrote that? Your your unfunny uncle? And I was so intimidated because I I, I wasn't anywhere near as, 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 as strong as, as Bob was, but I also had to pick what sketches of Bob's we would shoot yeah. on the show. And, so, and then David Cross came on for the last few, and then you felt like, Oh, this guy's in a whole nother world uh, with, with with Bob. Yeah, uh, and and uh, and they didn't write together at the time. Yeah, but uh, that sensibility that they did just on the, uh, the last episode or two of of the Stiller show. Yeah, um, I think sparked their interest in working with each other and doing Mister Show because after a bunch of episodes, uh, the the show expanded past. Uh, Ben's sensibility, and we started to have some room for the sensibility of the supporting cast yeah, and there's the other a, writers. Yeah, I used to live with Dave, you know, in Boston, and like then when he did cross comedy and they moved out here, like there was something, you know, Dave already had a very you know specific point of view, and Bob and Bob is very different in a lot of ways, but it's interesting that that with Bob's ridiculousness and amazing commitment to uh, to getting laughs at it, no matter, you know, by pushing this absurdity, you know, Dave has got this weird angry heart to him. Yes. That, and and the, the mixture really kind of worked pretty good. I remember going to those tapings and being baffled at how 
funny they were. I, I see myself in the crowd in some of them. You do. <laughs> and and, and I, I really was in awe, and, I, and still am. It's, but, but you went on to do, to do Sanders, which is another defining show for comedy nerddom. I mean, that's an amazing show. That's where I learned how to write stories. Gary was nice enough to hire me on that show after the Ben Stiller show, but I had never written a story before. Like it was full script in yes, a way. I, right. know, I didn't know how to write for people. I, I knew how you to write- You wrote sketches and jokes. Yeah, I knew how to write legends of Bruce Springsteen, yeah. but I, I didn't know how, how to write about people. And Gary was very nice and I was there on and off for five years and he ultimately allowed me to direct an episode and, and that's how I started directing but it was an amazing place to be and also scary because it's rip torn and jeffrey tambor and yes and 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 brilliant (laughs) and terrifying yeah and you know imagine having to walk up to rip torn and give him a note to change his performance i mean how'd that go it didn't go well it didn't go well (laughs) (laughs) at all (laughs) did he ever blow up at you I, i mean he he was a blustery guy at that time yeah but Correct most of the time. Yeah. And a, and a wonderful person who would always wind up doing what you were trying to get him to do. But if you walked up to him and said, Rip, could you? I, I think you're a little, uh, you know, nervous here. I'm not nervous. I'm in charge of the place, you know. And okay, Rip, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I, okay, we'll just do it the way you want to do it. <laughs> but, but, but just by planting the seed, maybe he'd come around to you. Three takes later, he might give you one. And then he would walk up to you. Ah, do you like the one I did the way you wanted to do it? That was all right. <laughs> and, and you did feel like, I am watching some of the greatest actors of all time, and certainly some of the greatest comedic actors of all yeah. time. And when they did the last scene of the Larry Sanders show, where Jeffrey Tamer goes off on Rip and Larry and says, there is a book being written about Hank Kingsley and you are not in it, and you are not in it, fuck you, or I, mean, I yeah, forgot yeah, the yeah. exact words. You know, they did it in one take and wrapped the series. I mean, those, that's ballsy guys. You know, what if there was a hair in the gate? <laughs> I mean, they were guys at the top of their game. Yeah. Uh, and so it was fun to to learn from them. And Gary is, you know, uh, certainly there's no one better at writing comedy and writing stories. And just by watching him fix things, somehow I, I, I learned a lot of what I know how to do, just observing how he would think things through. Do you think he's an underappreciated comic? He, I mean, what he did with The Larry Sanders Show is an achievement that it's impossible to even ex- explain. If you can imagine having to write a show, he's the head writer, and then you have to rehearse it for three days and then shoot the entire show in two days, so 17 pages a day, while punching up next week's script and editing two shows. And also the idea that, you know, not just the work ethic, I'm finding that all guys who you know do well work hard, but... The, and this comes, and this is my own question about funny people as well. That to create a, 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 a cast of characters that work within show business that are are pathologically selfish and and narcissistic and you know and and relatively not great people. Yes, <laughs> is uh, you know, it's difficult. It's challenging to find heart there. And and he clearly did. And on that show, he did. You know, you find heart through the weaknesses of all these, you know, extreme narcissists and lunatics. And and I think that you know, in in some ways, in funny people, that you know, that was your quest as well. That it's very hard to sell show business as being a reasonable place for human beings to work. That's true. And Gary used to always say the Larry Sanders show is about people who love each other 
but show business gets in the way. Yeah. And I, I've always thought uh, that's true of any story. Well, you know, what's getting in the way uh-huh. of, of people who, who love each other? And with funny people, I, I thought, well, what gets in the way for George Simmons is that he's so funny and people love him so much on a grand scale that it allows him to never grow up because no one can really call him on his shit because he he has approval from millions and but, only when when life is about to end does he realize I'm I'm alone here I I paid a massive price to right. be this guy and we all know people like that Was there uh, a sense so that he hated what made him famous so I think what I was intending to do w- was to to have him have a a career uh, that you couldn't, in hindsight, be super proud of. You know, where Adam in life has done, you know, a mix of big crowd-pleasing movies and Paul Thomas Anderson and James Brooks movies, and he's very daring as an actor, and, and he, he's, he's done things on the entire spectrum. I wanted this to be someone that was a little more like Dangerfield, where he just did Back to School, mm-hmm. and, and that was, that was his, it, over his, and over his, again. His, his, his world, yeah. and, and that... It wasn't enough to feel great about it. He wasn't Richard Pryor. In fact, we shot a whole scene where he explained uh, that all comedians are liars. And, and he's, you know, because Seth says, you should talk about being sick. Why don't you talk about being sick? And, and he says, no one wants to hear that. No one wants to. That's for like poets. And, and singers, no one wants to hear a comedian say, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm dying. Here's some jokes. Yeah. He goes, you know, he goes, all comedy is a lie. Seinfeld, he knows where the socks are. He knows where the sock disappeared in the dryer. He, Dangerfield says he gets no respect. Everyone kissed his fucking ass his entire life. It's bullshit. He goes, I don't even know if Richard Pryor was black. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the movie. And it felt a little inside baseball for for the movie. Uh, but are you happy with that movie all, overall? I am. It's a, you know, it's a painful movie in some respects because it's so personal. I'm I'm also deeply embarrassed. I'm proud, but it's like standing naked in, in terms of it has little shades of all sorts of things that I I struggle with, and I knew that I was going to put people through something. So where in a normal movie you think, all right, well, the four-year-old virgin needs to find love, and when he gets laid and gets married. The crowd is ecstatic because he's a nice person and he deserves it. But to start with a person who's damaged and isn't necessarily nice to everyone around him, and at the end of two and a half hours, he's slightly better with the potential to maybe get a little more better, uh, isn't the most satisfying journey. Because that was the, po- the point of the movie, which is even getting a terminal illness will not change the worldview of certain people. Did you do things in that movie because you were frightened that that would be too heavy? Uh, did I make adjustments to soften it? Soften it or, or to add elements uh, out, of, out of maybe some sense of insecurity? I think I went the other way with it, which is at the end of the edit, I removed a lot of jokes because I didn't think it was truthful. Mm-hmm. And so there were certain scenes where I could have gone to a bigger attempt for humor. And I thought, but you know what? He wouldn't. Let he it wouldn't, be. It wouldn't, he wouldn't do it right. there. And that's what I like about the movie. It's meant to be a movie that like sticks in your craw. No, uh, I, it, uh, it does. And, and I'm in show business. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, but there is a pain in making a movie like that because, you know, when you're super crowd pleasing, uh, you know, the crowd tells you. And when you're trying to be you know, somewhat crowd pleasing, but really more make people think about something that they really don't want to think about at all, 
which is how would you handle looking death in the eye, uh, you get uh, more polarized reactions. And for me, I'll never know how I did because I'll never get a fresh view of the movie. For me, it's all an intellectual exercise at some point yeah. because nothing will surprise me. Right. Uh, but but it's you know some people say uh, if you can't argue about a movie, it's probably not worth too much. So I figure, well, at least they're arguing about. Yeah, it. there were definitely arguments uh, about it in in uh, in people I talked to, and and w- with with that disease, what was the thinking around that disease? Did you have to decide a disease that wouldn't be too horrendously disturbing or that had a possibility where he could recover or that was something a little unknown? I, I didn't want to go into a chemo movie. Yeah. I, 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 so I did find a disease, you know, which is a form of leukemia where there is a treatment uh, that is Might available work. up north that does work for 10% of the people. It's all truthful stuff and it isn't one of those diseases where all your hair falls out and uh, so you I, had to I, do some homework around a disease that wouldn't undermine your movie or, or put it into a different perspective well, we, well we've all seen that movie <laughs> <laughs> and so how do i not do that movie i want adam to get sick but i i, do, I don't want it to be about how hard it is to take your medication for <laughs> more than a minute or two uh, and and that does happen to people where, like, out of the blue, yeah. you're better. Now yeah. what the fuck are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. And, and sadly, I've seen that happen to, to people very close to me where, you know, when they think they're going to die, they get very connected and more intimate and they drop a lot of the bullshit and they're more loving and they have a different perspective. And then maybe a month later, they're told that they're better. Yeah. And all those old neuroses return slowly. And the person you were before you ever got sick starts to want to come back. It and wins. Uh, and are you going to change completely? Are you going to change a little bit? There was a uh, there was something that inspired the movie, which is there was a uh, you know an, an executive of a, of a TV network, and uh, and he said, uh, and he was sick, and then he got better, and he said, you know, when I was sick, what I realized was we can be number one again. <laughs> and, and, and me and my friend said he's the only person who learned nothing from a life-threatening disease and uh, and that was part of the inspiration for the movie what if you learn nothing or almost nothing now when you look at the comedy movies that come out now you i i admire the direction you're going because i i like things that feel like i like to feel things you know because i, I don't do it in real life if i can't do it sitting in front of, i watched butch cassie and the sundance kid the other day because it was on a british airline i was coming back from London, they had it mm-hmm. in the collection part, and it was great. Yes, it's a great movie, and I laughed and I cried, and it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. You know, it's not supposed to, to make that happen. But I had this weird moment where I realized that I I don't experience much joy in life, and that there are things like movies and like you're talking about comedy when you were a kid, and also your reverence for for continuing to admire comics, yeah. which you do, uh, in comic actors. You know, that's part of experiencing joy and life. And and I guess that, you know, I admire your, your angle on it, and I have a harder time. It seems that there's a trend in comedy movies now that you, you might start with a pretty good story that seems kind of human, but out of some weird fear or overcompensation, it just goes into fucking ridiculous land. Yes. Now, you've produced movies like that, No. I've produced some movies that are better than others. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not putting a judgment on them, no, but I, yes, there there are movies that are a little more premisey, and there are movies where you're sticking very close to the truth. And uh, sometimes when you reach for a joke, I always call it sweaty. When something gets sweaty, like you could tell 
they feel they need a joke here right. and they're reaching for it. Yeah. When it doesn't work, it's brutal when thing you know, when things aren't organic. And also when you see movies that you can tell that nobody's passionate about it. It's just a project. It's a way for people to get paid. You know what those movies are. You know, when you see uh, you know, uh, you know, a movie that Sean Penn directed. Yeah. You realize he's not fucking around. It's yeah. like listening to a Nirvana record or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Warren Zevon's yeah. last album. It's, yeah. This is not a job. Yeah. They have something to say. And in comedy, the people that we like the most, when they score, they have something to say that's important to them, whether it's Chris Rock's stand up special or Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. or, or you know, Ricky Gervais and, and The sure. Office. They're not fucking around. Yeah. And to me, that's what I'm always looking for. Seth and Evan would kill for Superbad. It's not some comedy movie to them. Right, it's the right. most important thing in their lives, and there are things in it that they want to say, and there are things they want to do comedically that they think haven't been done. So there's a right. passion level that's not there in... In, in those movies, in, in the in, comedy in, product. In, in, yeah. Yes. In broad sort of farce, yeah. kind of like, you know, let's just keep getting more ridiculous, which yeah. has its place. And I'm sometimes not... it works. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it's hilarious. Sometimes people come up with this a weird idea, and... Uh, and it's just funny. It's just that it, it, for some reason they nailed it. Yeah, just you know, for fun. I, I agree. Yeah, and I and I think that that's definitely has value. And the, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was I believe that somehow or another you've redefined Jews uh, in movies and, and on TV. That you know it, it, it seems that with Jason and with Jonah and with Seth, who are you know a, a force, you know, comedy force as actors now and and and, and writers. Uh, that there's there's none of that shtick anymore, and these guys are Jews, aren't they? I think that they are. Some you of don't them... ever think about that. I mean, most like you don't. I mean, I come from a family of hardcore atheists. No, but and I don't culturally know, Jewish. I mean, I couldn't be more of a Jew for someone who is less of a Jew than anybody. Uh -huh. I I feel it genetically. Right. Uh, right. And, and I've thought about it but not too much because I don't really understand it. But there's something in me, whether it's how I observed my family and how it wired me to behave. None of it is from religion or a, a belief in God, but it, some of it might be from a post-Holocaust lack of a belief in God. Because when I was a kid, although people went to temple and every once in a while people would uh, bring out the matzah, Everyone didn't believe in God. Sure, in a hardcore but a way. But cultural Jewish thing. But they were hard. But they were Jews, and my right. uncle owned the deli. And right. uh, but there was a darkness to their point of view. I mean, their basic point of view was uh, nobody said life was fair. Right. That so, was the only spirituality I was given as a kid. Yeah. They never said life makes sense. They never said there's balance in the world. They never said yeah, yeah. you'll be reincarnated. It's not fair and fear bankruptcy. Exactly. That's what it was. <laughs> you fuck them before they fuck you. Uh, and. And it was a little dark. Yeah. And so I'm sure some of that, you know, seeps in. It's not the, it's not all the neurotic, I could never get a girl Jew. I mean, Seth Rogen thinks he can get Catherine Heigl to have sex with him and he pulls it off. Right. And we, I've seen a lot of guys do it. That's why it was funny when some people said, that could never happen. And, and I thought, have you ever been out on the street? Have you ever looked at couples? Yeah. There's plenty of goofy Jews with gorgeous shiksas. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. Annie Hall is about. Sure. Yeah, and, and I just think that all of them have a very unique timing. I mean, like, they just have a peculiar timing. Uh, physically, those three guys, I mean, as comedic actors, are really fucking unique. And they're also working in their own timing. Uh, the, that's the what I mean. The movie is reshaped 
to serve them. Mm-hmm. I'm not writing in some David Mamet style timing that they have to do. I'm listening to Seth's voice and and trying to figure him out. And that's that's the the that's the real challenge and gift of writing is to to be able to understand that much. And that comes specifically from writing for comics. I think so, because I've I've tried to combine understanding myself and paying attention to other people. So I may be writing something I feel very passionate about, but I know when we shoot it and I play around and rehearse, I want to get to how Sandler or Seth or Jonah behaves so that I can hear them and let them do their thing. Because I I never feel like my jokes are the most important. I'm happy for them to beat every joke I wrote. Yeah. I'm just trying to get, you know, it's kind of a half-ass Robert Altman where yeah. Robert Altman always wanted something else to happen. Yeah. Separate. And that's, you know, what I hope. My favorite moments in the movies are like, you know, when Leslie yells at the doorman and just starts screaming, doorman, doorman, doorman. Yeah. I mean, those aren't scripted yeah. moments. Yeah. I just know at some point Leslie's going to get unhinged <laughs> and what she would actually say will come out. Yeah. And you just let it happen. Yes. That moment in uh, in Jonah's moment in Forty uh, Year Old Virgin was too much. That in yes, the, in the store. I mean, I don't even. I can't even explain that comedically. I, I can't. I mean, that's just a nineteen year old kid who has one line in the movie. Yeah. And on the day we shot that scene in the Forty Year Old Virgin, it rained, and so we had like three free hours. And as a goof, I said, "Let's let Jonah." <laughs> improvise with Catherine Keener just to see how scared he gets just to see what he does and he was so funny that we were just having the best day of our lives watching him curse out Catherine Keener and he did say enjoy your fucking bankruptcy and it was just very funny and and then we never tested it when we would show the movie and on the very last test we said let's chuck in like 90 seconds of Jonah being mean to Catherine Keener just to see if people like him not that we thought we'd put it in the movie and it just got such giant laughs we thought well maybe for no reason the movie can stop its story cold to just let jonah hill go nuts and and people people liked it so what's your what is your uh your perfect in your mind you know what is the 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 perfect comedy movie yeah that that you judge all against uh or two or three there are a few movies that i i always go back to i always go back to fast times at ridgemont high it pulls off a couple of things at the same time. One is it has this, this really hilarious, broad humor with Sh- Sean Penn as mm-hmm. Spicoli. Yeah. Uh, but Jennifer Jason Leigh gets pregnant and has an abortion in it, and it's played straight. And he's able to be incredibly truthful, but he can get to broad. Who directed that? Uh, it, it, well, it was written by Cameron Crowe yeah. and Amy Heckerling directed right. it. And that is has always been one of the main models. Because of the emotional variation. Can I have this feel real, but still whack Steve Carell? Right. Can I have you care about him, but when I wax him, does the reality level not go out the window? Right. And so when you can do that well, it's a big deal. So that's that's a big one for me. Terms of Endearment, I always go back to as a movie about something very serious that's hysterically funny. And all the classics like Annie Hall and Dr. Strangelove and... I was watching Tin Men the other day, all those Barry Levinson movies. How about The In-Laws? I mean, the, yeah, The In-Laws, all the old Albert Brooks movies. Anytime you talk about it, you feel terrible because yeah. there's 10 more behind everyone you could mention. But it's interesting to me that, like, for the most part, you know, outside of appreciating it as a classic, as, as a, an inspiration, Woody Allen is not one for you, particularly? I, well, I never mentioned Woody Allen, one, because... 
some of his stuff is so great you feel like a fool even mentioning you're in the same business as him okay it just feels awkward to say i do yeah what he does right but also i think probably when all that stuff happened to him and his family and the stuff with his kids there was a part of me that disconnected a little bit uh-huh maybe after i read the mia farrow book i just was like yeah got a little creeped out and and my incredible worship and affection got dented that happens and i don't know where i stand on any of it because i i i thought it was really interesting seeing that movie about uh him touring europe with his wife and and he seems very happy and his wife seems very devoted but then there's another side to it where you think he's strange he's stranger than i thought he was and darker than i thought he was and so i don't connect to it in the, the exact same way as i did when i was a kid watching take the money and run and just thought this is the funniest man well, on the earth. I know too much now. Right, and also it turns out that, you know, that, that his insistence on distance from the character is disconcerting. And it's and a lie. It, 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 I, you want to you believe it's a lie. You believe it's a lie. I think it's, it's, it couldn't be a bigger lie for him to say I'm not like my characters or this, these aren't ideas that I believe because that writing doesn't make sense. If you see Bullets Over Broadway, a lot of it, you know... There's that section where one of the characters says, the heart wants what it wants. Well, isn't that the story of this section of his life? He he wanted this woman at all costs. And I'm not judging it either way, but I know he's revealing parts of himself in all of his work. And so for him to say, I'm not like that. I don't feel that way uh, as the character does in Stardust Memories. Well, I've been through a lot of the experiences that he's been through, and I understand why he felt that way. Right. and made Stardust Memories. So to say, oh, that's just a character. I mean, everything's 60% made up. But, but there's the, 40% true in all of it. Right, but what I'm saying is that, like, you know, the thing you want to believe about that character is that he struggles with this shit. And yes. when you read about the reality of it, that, you know, he was a lot more calculating and, and a lot more selfish and, and dubious. Uh, mm. That's what's disconcerting. That he didn't fight what the heart wanted. Sometimes you have to fight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's plenty of things, plenty of things I want that I should not take. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. So that makes it more complicated for me. I mean, th- that's the perfect argument for I should know nothing about the people who make art because it, it affects how true, I watch it. True. When I read the uh, "Please Kill Me" about the punk rock scene in New York, about mm-hmm. Lou Reed, not, you know, as 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 shitty as those, uh, you know, I knew they were all drug addicts and everything else, but you know, Lou Reed was such an asshole. I can't. It just fucked it up for me. Yes. I don't read much about comics because I don't. You know, I know how filthy we all are. Yes, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to know too much about but, anybody. Yeah. I mean, if you like read, like, of like, course, the new Groucho true. biography, you're like, God, Groucho was a prick. Yeah, of like not like a was. funny prick, yeah. a real prick. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you, do you do Marx Brothers? Yes, I'm very obsessed with the, with, the, with the Marx Brothers. Because of who taught you to like the Marx Brothers? They were just on TV all the time, and and I have to say they were the first comedy act that I connected to, and I think it was because it, it was so rebellious. They were on New Jersey TV and New York TV on Channel 11 or whatever? Yeah, constantly. Right, and, and like with the, with the Little Rascals in uh, Three Stooges. And then Abbott Costello right. was on constantly. But Groucho was basically saying, this is all bullshit also. Right. And flipping the bird at, at all of the rules and government. Right. And, and for some reason, I, I couldn't have taken to it more. I, I just... I mean, Groucho, when I was in sixth grade, I wrote a 30-page book report about Groucho that was not assigned in school. I just wanted to write it. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I was but, connecting. Did, but did you feel that 
because you're not that aggressively, you know, fuck you. You know, and do no, you feel- I don't think that's my point of view anymore. My point of view. Uh, it was, <laughs> though? Uh, well, I never felt that way enough to be super funny, quite frankly. There were comedians when I first started out who were working like Kinnison and, and Bill yeah. Hicks. And those yeah. were the guys that were, you know, the best guys when I first started. Yeah. Uh, and they were hilarious because there was such rage and self-righteousness and they thought they had the answers for everything. And I never felt that way about yeah. myself. Yeah. I, I didn't never thought I had any answers yeah. for anything. And I wasn't as mad at them. I, I probably didn't know as much about well, the world as they knew, but I wasn't mad like Kinnison was mad. I was just trying to meet a girl and get right. to, get to see you, a good you pace. Were, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you respected that, and that's interesting. So, But I'm sure I had anger, but as I've gotten older, I really do believe that you know life is about finding ways to connect with other people, and I'm more attracted to a James Brooks sensibility where all of these stories are about how people finally come together that's where the i think that's where the joy is i mean i think that's yeah. where humanity is i think this sort of like you know the fuck you i'm better than you or i know more than you or life is fucked like i you know i come from that mold and now that's all melting away yes. and and i don't i don't always know what to do with it and what replaces it when it melts away um if on a good day you know a certain you know gratitude and and belief that that i should probably try to enjoy my life you know, before it yeah. goes away. Yeah. Uh, you know, on a bad day, you know, self pity, resentment, over, over, uh, over. You know, disappointment. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> that's why I made funny people. I mean, it's exactly that. He has a moment where it melts away, and then suddenly he's better. And what do I do? And I don't know what to do. Yeah. Maybe I'll just go fuck my old girlfriend. Yeah. And steal her from. Her. Maybe maybe she'll make me feel better about myself. Yeah, yeah. And and I swing back and forth all the time. And it's a weird position for me because I think, well, I've really done a lot of what I wanted to do. Why am I even doing it now? What 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 what's left to say that I haven't said? I can kind of rework it. But I'm also, am I doing it for approval or do I really want to express something? So uh, as I like here, I'm writing a new project. That's what I struggle with, which is. Okay, what haven't you said? Have you gotten it? Have you have you made your main points? You don't want to be working just to work. Yeah, and, and what? And so I, I I don't know. I just you, look. You have any answers? I have no. I, well, we'll see how I do with the with the next movie. You just like to stay busy. I've covered a lot of ground, and now I'm trying to say, well, here's where I'm at now, and that's the next movie. Is just here's where I am at now. Well, how is it different? Uh, it, in, in terms of what I'm trying to write? Well, yeah, I mean, just like, you know, whatever you're doing right now, I mean, you know, given, you know, you've had a, a you know, a beautiful run and in, in, in ups and downs and an arc, and now you're a grown-up, a grown person, and, you know, you're writing a new movie. What's different? I think, well, I just, I just want to go uh, deeper and more personal every time to the point where you start writing and you think, can I even say this? Who will I hurt if I express these ideas? You know, am I giving up too much history of my experience? Uh, but there's no way to dig it out without, uh, you know, going to the places that you normally would hide from everybody. And so uh, uh, it's just, it's it literally, it's just going deeper. There are things I did in the other movies where I reference an attitude, but I didn't really explain where it came from. So in Knocked Up, there's a sequence where Paul Rudd is on mushrooms. And he's like, I can't accept her love. I can't accept her love. And he's on mushrooms. And then the next time you see him, he's happy and he's married. And you realize, well, it's bumpy, but they always get back together. 
And, and that's what the relationship is. But, you know, as I write the next thing, well, maybe I, I want to show you what happened in between of how people come back together and, so, and what those moments are about and why someone feels that way. You know, uh, what, Yeah, yeah, to, 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 to push it a little further. To, I, to, I mean, I've listened to the show a lot, and you talk a lot about, you know, your family and what makes you feel separate from other people. And that is what interests me now, which is why do I feel separate why am why am i still in my room yeah watching tv kind of yeah in my mind yeah i'm still kind of in that room and, I, and i'm not as connected to other people as i want to be so i'm trying to do that but even when i'm doing it if i'm at a party or i'm at school there's a part of me that wishes i could run out and sit in my room and watch the merv griffin show alone <sighs> i know <laughs> 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 uh, but I do enjoy when those moments of connection happen, and that's why are we so afraid thing. of joy? That, I, I mean, that's the the, the question, I, and I've thought about it a lot. And I think it's because we we think right behind uh, joy is a knife that will <laughs> cut our throat, and if we really feel it, it's almost like a laugh, and your your chin goes up, and your throat is exposed. <laughs> and if I laugh too loud, someone will slit my throat, and so that's. The terror of joy. If I enjoy this as com- you know as completely as I as I want to, yeah. it's gonna hurt when it goes wrong. Yeah, and the and the mistake is it hurts already. Yeah, like keeping shut down is what really right. hurts. Right, and so it doesn't actually make sense, and you have to think about it all the time to know that's what's happening. Like. Oh, I'm not actually enjoying this. Yeah. And if you're thinking about it, it, you won't, it stops it from happening. Yeah. And then you're not present. Yeah. Because you're waiting for a punch. That's yeah. how I feel like. I, I feel like I have my dukes up all day long looking for someone who's going to punch me. And here's the thing. No one no. ever punches me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe back in the old days, but that that that's not what happened. But you don't feel driven by that, though. See, like, you know, when people say, like, but isn't that what drives you? And, you know, it, what would you be without that? And, and, you know, I, I don't know, I think if you separate yourself from the work and through everything else, that that inability to accept love or that inability to feel that, I mean, the truth, there, there can't be a knife there, but I just don't think that we have a general trust of the universe for some reason. No, because we came from these crazy, uh, for me, post-Holocaust Jews yeah. who don't trust that the world is safe. And also from divorce. You, and when from you were divorce, young. yeah. When, you, when your parents get divorced and suddenly you're, you think, oh, Life collapses suddenly. <laughs> suddenly you say, hey, Judd, could you come down in the living room? We need to talk to you for a minute. <laughs> Mommy's moving out. <laughs> and, and, and you think like, well, that's got to happen again. Yeah. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I better be ready for it. And, and staying ready for it is what detaches you from life. And, and for me, that's been the great lesson of marriage and, and my beautiful wife and beautiful daughters is they will not accept that. Daddy needs to be here and needs to be happy and, and connected and present. And so, you know, it, it forces me to do the work to to not be the guy who wants to detach. Or split. Yeah. And that wiring is intense. Mm. And I've had to also accept, like, I shouldn't beat up on myself because I'm wired that way. I, I, I can't be mad at myself, but I can just keep coming back. And that, that's all I can do. I just got to keep coming back. And in my work, when I look at it and I go, what did I write about? Yeah. It is about that. It's about the 40-year-old virgin hides in his room and plays with his toys because he's afraid that people are going to tell him, you know, you think you're a freak? You are. 
And so it takes so much for him to put himself out there to find out, oh, he is lovable. She loves him. Yeah. And the same in a way with, with Seth Rogen. Yeah. There's this beautiful woman. She she does love you. You don't have to stay stoned all day long. You can, can enter into this experience. Or even funny people. Adam can open up to the fact that Seth is a good guy and can be his friend. And there might be a different way to do this. Though out of all of them, that one you don't feel is going to stick. You feel like he's going to have the hardest time. And in a way, it's the most truthful. Right. Because people... You know, I've been in therapy for a very long time. It's a small incremental adjustment that happens, and you have to really work yeah, to make the change. Be vigilant. Because it's like biofeedback. You're trying to, through repetition, change where your mind goes. How you're hardwired. I mean, you're in therapy now, right? No, I need to be. Did you ever go? I did for a while. You know, it helped me, you know, and I'm at this juncture now where I clearly have to go back. Something just happened. I'm not sure what. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, like, you know, I've been feeling pretty good, you know, about this and about my comedy and about a lot of stuff. And then I don't know, just something just went, you know, and yeah. you have that moment where like, I fucked up two marriages, you know, like, you know, I am respected, but I'm, you know, I'm not hilarious to everybody. But yeah, I never sold myself that way. A lot of things start to crumble. Yes. And, it's, and all of a sudden you're like, you're alone. And like, I wish I had more toys. You know, like I don't even go to TV. You know, I'm not nerdy enough to have a real outlet. You know, I'll just sit there and just beat the shit out of myself. And there's nothing staring at the wall. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, man. Hardcore. I'm like, don't don't interrupt me. Don't take me away from this. And that was the weirdest thing about being on that plane last week and watching that movie. Like I had that moment. It was that that Havershuk moment. Watching fucking Butch and Sundance because that is that moment. That's a funny movie. Yes. You know, and there's that moment where you know, can I move? You know, where there are those unforgettable moments, and, mm -hmm. and he does it, and it's like I'm crying and laughing at this thing and moved by this thing that always moved me. And, and there's no reason I can't do that more. Like, what I'm saying to you, Judd, is I got to plan my escapes better. Like, if I can just, you know, make a list of all the things that take me out of me in a healthy way, <laughs> I'll be okay. I, I feel the same way. I, if, I, <laughs> if I miss a few weeks of therapy, yeah. uh, my therapist goes away several weeks and then comes back for several weeks. So he's always gone a third to a half of the time. Yeah. And I slip back. Yeah. I slip back every time. And you don't know what happened. Like, I like to read self-help books yeah. voraciously. I just read them you do? constantly. Buddha books, everything. And, uh, and if I just stop for a week or two, my mind just goes to a dark place. And what happens is when I feel good, I get lazy and think I don't need to do the work anymore. And it just happens quickly that I drift and I don't realize that I've drifted back to my old wiring. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very, uh, yeah. and it's, it's disconcerting. And it is easier to watch Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids I know. than to sit alone in the room or to have a conversation with another human being. Yeah. Uh, that is the weird thing. It's painful to connect Sometimes. When you're that sad. Yeah. Because when you feel the sadness tugging at you, because you can feel yeah. it in your heart, that yes. like, you know, you're like, you know, you can't hide it. And there's part yeah. of you that wants nothing more than this for to have somebody make it better. But you don't want to put that on them. Yeah. So you're sort of like, no, nah, fuck you. I and it takes courage to feel it. Yeah. To go all the way into yeah. it. To go, <laughs> yeah. what is it? Yeah. To then pull out of it. So it's like. You and you need someone there to do that with, right? Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean... But isn't that what the therapist helps you on some level? I mean, I enjoy therapy, uh, but I know that I don't do as much work by myself as I should yeah. to keep present. Like, I've always known that if I meditated for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes 
at the end of the day, yeah. my com- life would be completely transformed. Oh, you, and you I have too. never done it once. <laughs> I, I would the same way. I, you know, it, you know, it's like I can go 90 seconds, and I will feel better even on 90 seconds, but I won't do it. And the part of me that won't allow me to do it yeah. is the part that wants to watch the Murph Griffin show. It's saying, I don't want... The part you. waiting for the punch, waiting for the knife. Yeah, it's like, I'm protecting you. If you meditate, you're going to think about how none of this shit makes sense. And I guess a Buddhist would say, no, if you meditated long enough, you would know that it all makes sense. Yeah. But there's a part of you that's like, no, it doesn't, because no one said life was fair, and you're going to just look into the dark <laughs> abyss in your quiet meditation and realize there's nothing fucking there. Well, we should try it. Let's make a meditation pact. We should do a meditation uh, pact. You want to? Uh, if you do it, I'll do it. I, I will try to do it. Now, what is this book that you've done for Mc, the McSweeney's people? Uh, this is something I'm oddly excited about, which is I was talking to to Dave Eggers and 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 was a part of helping raise money for these tutoring centers he he has across the country. The, 826. 826, right, yeah. And they're in New York and San Francisco shows, yeah. and Michigan. And and it just hit me, oh, maybe I could put out one of those books, which is a collection of my favorite pieces of humor. So the book is called I Found This Funny. And what is funniest about the book is most of it isn't funny. I, I, I couldn't help myself. And I just put in a lot of short stories that I love that most people would finish and say, oh, that was kind of depressing. That really wasn't a like funny what? short story. There's, there's a short story by Raymond Carver uh, called Elephant, I believe. There's a Flannery O'Connor story in there. Known for uh, being hilarious. <laughs> known for her hilarious yeah. prose. Is hilarious. Uh, it is actually funny, though. Andre Debut, who's a writer who, who, uh, who wrote a short story that became the movie uh, In the Bedroom. But in addition to that... There's a, a, a television pilot that Robert Smigel and Conan O'Brien wrote for Adam West 20 years ago uh-huh. called Look Well, which is an incredible piece of comedy writing. There's my favorite Adam McKay, Tom Giannis sketch from Saturday Night Live, and these Tony Hoagland poems and Simon Rich uh, humor pieces and stuff from Jack Handy and uh, a piece of Steve Martin's uh, memoirs. And it's everything that I, I love to read in this one 480-page book. That's perfect for the uh, the bathroom or an airplane. Well, that sounds good. So that's out, what? It's not out yet, right? It, it comes out uh, in mid-October. And what's funny is when you do a collection of, of humor, when it's done, you kind of think you wrote it. All I wrote was the first four-page introduction and picked everything, but I've tricked myself into thinking... I wrote the Ernest Hemingway short story in it. <laughs> and I wrote the F. Scott Fitzgerald, <laughs> Pat Hobby story in there. I, in my head, I'm so proud of it. Like I did something, but I really just said, pick, yeah. use those. You just made selections. <laughs> but it took a year to select them. It literally took a year of reading. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever I can't read on that board. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything on this board. This is a board of ideas for the new uh, movie that I'm, I'm writing. I'm trying to think if there's anything here that makes sense out of... Paul Rudd in it. Paul Rudd uh, is in it. Yes, that's that's the one clue. <laughs> <laughs> right there, it says, "Is it Rudd's birthday?" That's uh... that's all they get. <laughs> that's what they get. Let's not give him any more. <laughs> and it says piano recital. That's all you can know. Brooks arrives. Is that Albert Brooks? Brooks? Or I, I, who knows? That's that's okay. yet to all be right. determined. What all right. is it? A man named Brooks? Is okay, it, it could be any kind of a Brooks. Well, th- this has been great and cathartic, and uh, I feel better. I felt shitty when I got here a little bit. Not I, I, because of you. Yes. Do you feel better? 
you know, here's the thing about me. I like to do anything that doesn't involve writing. So, so you think I gotta get going because Judd has things to do. What I'm thinking is, Mark, don't leave. <laughs> well, You're gonna, gonna leave go. me alone with the typewriter, and it's there's a blank page. <laughs> All right, Judd. Thanks for talking. All right. Okay, folks, that's it. That is the two-part WTF Judd Apatow interview. Uh, I, I got to tell you, he was just a, a genuine, nice guy and, and a hard worker and a funny fucking guy. And uh, it was uh, lovely talking to him. Please go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF needs. You can go to the WTF Pod shop to get any one of the three premium episodes. Uh, enjoy those. And please go to PunchlineMagazine.com for any of your up-to-date comedy news standuprecords.com for uh, their comedy selection and I really appreciate y'all listening hope you dug the show Uh, justcoffee.coop hang on pow wow I think I shit my pants justcoffee.coop thanks a lot folks why why can't I just figure out an outro why can't I just get off just get off just stop bye bye